welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, this is James, and welcome to the Madden America podcast. And this week, Emily Shearer Cutler interviews Dr. William Davies, author of The Happiness Industry. So, welcome to the Madden America podcast. This week, we're going to be interviewing Dr. William Davies. He's a reader in political economy at Goldsmiths University of London, and he's the author of a renowned book called The Happiness Industry. His next book, Nervous States, Democracy, and the Decline of Reason, will be published by Norton in early 2019. So thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Davies. Pleasure. Can you go ahead and define the happiness industry for our listeners? Sure. I think... There has been, I think many people will recognize a development of, on various fronts, both in the business world and in the health world and in the public policy world and in the realm of self-help, a rising uh, set of techniques and a uh, set of ideas that treat happiness as something that can be measured, something that can be monitored, uh, managed, and ultimately can be optimized in ways that will make us healthier, more productive, uh, more um, socially successful, more confident, uh, and that happiness can become not just uh, an ethical achievement, as it was for many philosophers over uh, thousands of years, or something that happens to us, and that's where the word happiness originally comes from, is that it's something that kind of happens to us, it almost by accident, but that we can actively inculcate it and we can actively pursue it in the way that we might pursue other types of um, goods in uh, the workplace or uh, in the economy. So that's the kind of general topic of my of my analysis in, in the happiness industry book. But of course, you know, that, 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 that varies from different cases to cases uh, and it has different types of, of history depending on, on what exactly you're talking about. So what are some of the ways that the happiness industry um, is manifested in our culture, either through um, different self-help groups or psychiatry? Well, I mean, one place to start would be in, in workplaces, because I think that there's, there's quite a lot of evidence that people who are happier are also more engaged with their work and are more productive and might achieve more in their careers and so on. Now, this obviously poses various questions about the nature of the relationship between these, these different things, because obviously it may be that people are happier because um, they've uh, been more uh, lucky or more successful in the labor market or whatever it might be. But I think one thing that's, that's changed, I think, especially since the 1990s, is that a new set of techniques has entered the management profession and the human resources profession, which has looked at trying to kind of bolster happiness of employees so as to make them more hardworking, less likely to take sick leave, less likely to kind of disengage from their work and that sort of thing. And these techniques can be anything from I mean, you know, some of them are very good techniques. Some of them are things that we, we should welcome, such as just trying to make the workplace kind of, you know, a, a nicer place to be and uh, allowing people to take breaks and these sorts of things that no one can complain about. But I think that where it becomes more insidious and some people are rather more suspicious is you hear of um, stories of workplaces where people uh, take part in, you know, at the beginning of the day, there'll be kind of motivational speaking or singing or dancing even, so as to get people really kind of revved up 
um, such that they have to kind of, you know, learn to really love their workplace, but almost in a kind of an enforced way. Or alternatively, there are workplaces where the employer doesn't necessarily really care that much about how the employee is feeling or how they, you know, how they really are inside, but they just want them to behave in a more kind of positive fashion. And uh, I guess a, a case of this would be something like um, call centers, where frankly, it's, it's quite high stress work. Um, there can be quite a high turnover of staff. But the main thing is that each person who is uh, helped on the phone and you know, each customer that rings up gets the feeling that they are at least being spoken to by someone who is, is positive and happy, but inside that person might be miserable. And I mean, one of the one of the first case studies or first pieces of empirical research on this in the social sciences was a was a landmark a landmark book uh, called The Managed Heart uh, by a, a famous American sociologist called Arlie Russell Hochschild, and this was around about 1980, and she studied um, airline stewards um, to look at the ways in which they were sort of encouraged to smile and behave in a certain way so as to kind of exude a positivity. And that was really, I think, at the the dawn of of a new era of workplace practices where positivity and, um, and, 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 and the kind of outward manifestations of positive affect were being kind of inculcated as part of a new set of techniques in the workplace. So those are just some examples in, in the workplace. But I mean, we could also talk about self-help or we can talk about, you know, the way in which happiness is, has, has, has become part of the kind of, you know, doctor-patient relationship or equally the way in which, you know, there is a whole kind of, um, I guess you could call it an industry of, well, as the way in which positive thinking has been kind of mobilized by various sort of gurus and self-help gurus as a way of trying to telling people that they'll become rich if only they can start to think more more positively about their their life and that sort of thing. So I want to go back to what you said about the 70s and 80s was kind of when this all started. And I know your book has talked a little bit about other major self-help programs in the 70s. Um, I was wondering if you could say more about the influence of those. I think that there has been, I mean, Clearly, the, the influence of the 1960s is, is very important in all of this. Um, and a lot of the first efforts to maybe not, in, I mean, I'm not sure if I, I really talk about it in the workplace, but I think, I mean, there was, a, there, was a, there was a transformation in the way in which, in particular, in which depression was understood between the early 60s and the, and the late 70s, where, um, I mean, this is, this is a slightly separate issue, but it, I think it certainly has contributed to the sense that happiness and unhappiness um, are things that can be kind of scientifically and objectively known about and, and quantified was clearly something that, um, you know, I think that the, the changes in the nature of psychiatric understanding of, of depression, this was, a, this was a major issue over the 60s and 70s. And that, there were various forces that fed into that. One was, was um, humanist psychology. And there has been some, there's some really interesting kind of histories of, of, of this as well in terms of, you know, the, the idea that a human being really ought to carry on getting kind of happier and happier and happier, which is never, which is never something that kind of someone like Freud believed, for instance. Um, and, um, but also the introduction of new scales for measuring depression, such as the, the Beck Depression Inventory, which was, I think, 1961. And then you get the kind of medicalization of, of American psychiatry that is a, a story that's been, been, been mapped in, in various ways, such that by the late 1970s, you know, to feel kind of uh, unhappy for a certain length of time was something that could become measured using various scales uh, and ultimately could become 
the basis of a diagnosis of a particular, uh, you know, affective disorder in ways that sort of had lost a lot of the kind of psychoanalytic baggage that had previously gone with the understanding of depression up until that time. So there, there was definitely a, a kind of key set of shifts that went on between in the 60s and 70s that plays a role. I'm not sure I didn't I didn't really look at that in the in the context of management so much. And then, yeah, what about um, kind of contemporary? How has that changed up until now mm-hmm. and influenced how it's carried out today? Well, I mean, just to step, step back for, for a moment. I mean, so in, in my book, um, I, I talk about the, the aspiration to get a kind of a scientific and quantitative knowledge of, of happiness as actually quite a foundational enlightenment dream really and you could even say a fantasy and and it begins with the work of the English philosopher Jeremy Bentham right back in the 1780s who who had these kind of you know he dreamt that one day we might be able to really kind of get a, a an actual measure of happiness and so we could compare you know how two different activities um which was better purely in, in completely kind of scientific objective terms and 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 this kind of this is a sort of dream that's been hovering in the background for a long time but it, it always kind of seems to recur every time there's a major breakthrough in in in, in particular technical, uh, technological and, and scientific fields. And um, you know, one of those moments I, I look at a moment in the in the late 19th century where there was sort of whole new attention to you know, the birth of psychology and, and and the birth of neoclassical economics, which made people think they were going to kind of grasp this. But in terms of the present day, I think there are a couple of things that have that have really created a massive leap in. This or this 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 dream has been revived all over again. One is the rapid advances in the neurosciences over the last kind of twenty years or so, which have created a lot of excitement in areas such as market research and elsewhere that we can really kind of get to grips with how pleasure and happiness and desire operate at a neurochemical level. And, you know, you sort of hear people talking about kind of dopamine as this sort of, you know, the reward chemical where um, people buy something, they get a shot of dopamine and or they take some cocaine and they get a shot of dopamine or, you know, someone makes a good trade on the stock market and they, they get this, this this shot of dopamine. And this is, a, I mean, a, a very sort of crude um, sort of reduction of, of, of what is no doubt a much more complicated neuroscientific story. But there is, I think there's been a lot of... Um, in some ways, kind of particularly the popularization of neuroscience has has led to this, um, you know, huge kind of enthusiasm for this version of, of how we make our decisions, how we make our choices, while at the same time, you know, there's a sort of, I think the, the neurochemical theory of depression has you know, is, is is as dominant as it's as it's ever been. I mean, this the, the idea that depression is a is a is a is a breakdown in neurochemistry, which was you know became started to become the orthodoxy in the 1970s. But but now I think, and this isn't a, I'm not I'm not dismissing it as such. But I think it's you know in terms of the sort of development of how we understand ourselves and our happiness and our unhappiness. I think that it's it's now as as, as dominant as, as it's ever been that we understand depression as a breakdown in, in in neurochemistry. So that's that's one thing that's going on is that is that we think of our our feelings as as physical phenomena much more. We think of them as 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 they are they, they are things that our body is doing uh, that our brain is doing. The other thing that that is you know a constantly moving frontier, and it's moved you know even since I published my book three years ago, it's moved significantly, is how Silicon Valley gets to grips with all of this stuff. Um, obviously, the market research industry has 
ever since the founding of market research in the late 19th century, has wanted to know kind of what gives people pleasure, what determines people's desires and choices and preferences and so on for obvious reasons. And, you know, there is this whole field of what's called affective computing, which includes um, techniques for being able to calculate the um the, the feelings expressed in a given sentence, like in a tweet or something, equally facial analytics, being able to detect different uh, uh, moods on facial expressions so that, you know, you, you feed a machine learning algorithm kind of like thousands or millions of different facial expressions with some way of being able to learn about which what, what kind of mood these faces are. Are, are conveying these social media platforms like Snapchat and others are, are, are patenting all sorts of different techniques for being able to extract some kind of um, intelligence from the faces that are being uh, shared on their on their platforms. Um, and this can be done in public as well now. I mean, it sounds rather sort of terrifying to think, but you know, it is possible now for an advertising hoarding to. Get, show you a different image depending on what kind of mood your face is expressing. So this and this can be done, and it raises civil liberties questions. But these techniques are these techniques are now out there. So I think that the, the sense that the sense of emotion as something that belongs to the body in some way is expressed by the face, the body, uh, pulse rates, other types of sort of vital signs of the body, and can be read by an algorithm. I think this is becoming a, the sort of new hegemony. Of, of sort of how happiness is is kind of grasped sort of technically and scientifically. Um, now, of course, you know, human beings are more complicated than that. And we hopefully we all know we're more complicated than that. And there will be aspects of ourselves that don't get grasped that way. But I think that is the that is the frontier of, of where a lot of the science is going. And what do you think is the impact of that on our culture? How does that play out um, in societies and social life and the workplace? Well, I think, I mean, the sense of depression in particular as, as neurochemical, but equally sort of positive affect as, as neurochemical. I mean, of course, it, it, some people have been hugely helped by that as a kind of discovery of the last 40 or 50 years. And there are lots of people out there who would say that they, they, they wouldn't be alive right now if it wasn't for SSRIs. And we have to kind of respect that and take that very seriously um, and, and not sort of claim that that's sort of um, ideological or something. But I think that there is a there is a sort of in some ways it's the entire notion of the of the modern self as as to put it in philosophical terms if we think of modern societies in in the sort of i suppose back in the 17th century developed a, an idea of, of of all of us as having this kind of autonomous liberal subjectivity within us um which has has gradually been kind of kind of eroded by various forces which show that we're actually kind of you know we don't really take decisions our brains do before we even become conscious of them or whatever it might be uh, and equally you know it's possible that uh, a wearable technology can sort of tell you you know where you are happiest or you know what behaviors are kind of can spot various correlations between your location and your mood or your behavior and your mood and so on so i think that i mean i'm not i'm not saying that we live in a culture where people are, are just sort of trusting their apps and trusting their data to decide how to live their lives but i think that a lot of this potentially you know turns um turns turns happiness into into another type of sort of health or another type of economic productivity where it is possible to sort of minutely manage both our own lives according to a sort of form of mood optimization. But I think that in particular, retail environments and workplace environments can be 
far more scientifically carefully designed around what kinds of moods and affect or cities for that matter you know like it's it's possible to think about what kind of you know how, how would you design a city or or design a some of these sort of campus type workplaces um uh, Tony Shea, who's the, the founder of Zappos.com, I mean, I think he's a great believer in, 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 in these sort of new kind of campus-like m- workplace models where kind of the entire employee is has all of their sort of needs and sort of emotional, physical and psychological needs all sort of taken care of by this environment, which raises the question of sort of where, how do we kind of leave anything to chance any longer? How do we sort of, how do we sort of mess up or have accidents or, or discover new things that we had no idea we were into or or also kind of endure the sort of suffering that sometimes goes with great experiences or or um you know difficult experiences and that sort of thing and i mean i i, I think I, I i don't mean to sort of be i don't, I don't want to sort of romanticize some sort of kind of pre-industrial or kind of anti-industrial happiness um and, and i think it's important to recognize you know that that there's nothing there's nothing kind of intrinsically kind of creative or or productive about about misery i mean i think um like that we we have to sort of not fall into that kind of romantic trap either which can be sort of rather conservative and oppressive but i do think that the the, the infiltration into our into our minds and moods by combination of, of sort of sort of increasing transparency of, of brain activity and increasing monitoring of communication and increasing intelligence of computers in this area the whole field of affective ai or whatever term you use for it is is, is means that that less and less of of these domains of, of human experience and and relationships are kind of uh, opaque in a way i mean that the, the mystery of a lot of this sort of this this area these areas of our lives is being sort of corroded in some ways and i think that that is sad absolutely yeah going back to what you said about romanticizing misery. I kind of, I've definitely heard that notion. And um, I'm not sure that the idea of romanticizing misery is that far off from what the happiness industry is. Um, Because I I think that, yeah, on the one hand, you have pre-industrial notions of, um, yeah, romanticized misery or almost like Mm. anti-happiness. And then you have the happiness industry, which isn't really doing anything necessarily to increase um, conditions that will make somebody happy, but basically saying it's okay if these conditions are still there that make you miserable, you can control your own happiness. You can take that into your own hands. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, that's the risk. I mean, I think there are various ways in which you can try and collect knowledge about happiness and, and they produce different um, sort of, they have different sort of political implications or ethical implications. So if, if the focus is always on the, the individual and their behavior and their, their brain and their face and their, you know, activity, then that is on the one hand quite disempowering for that individual because it kind of, you know, who's going to collect that data and what are they going to do with it? And and this is not a, this is a rather a dystopian society. On the other hand, it, it can potentially be used simply to make them feel more guilty and more responsible um, if they're made to feel that they you know, everything is within their control when clearly it's not. Um, I mean, one of the, this is, a, I think, a, I don't think it's unique to, to Britain, but it's one of the, one of the sort of more concerning stories that I, that I came across when I was researching the book is we, um, you know, we have state 
provided unemployment benefits uh, in the UK, but they've become less and less generous um, over time and increasingly contingent on the fact that the, the recipients have to be looking for work. And this is part of a sort of workfare system that was pioneered in the United States and has been kind of mimics in some ways in Britain. But increasingly, um, what I discovered when I was looking into this is that these workfare programs, which are about trying to get people to sort of go and find work, we, we're integrating positive thinking programs so that people would be forced to recite these various slogans like, you know, um, the only person who's holding me back is myself and, um, you know, there's no fault in falling down, but you have to keep on getting up again and like, you know, like you sh no one ever drowned in their own sweat and these sorts of, you know, positive thinking slogans and they'd be forced to do it when they might be facing terrible obstacles elsewhere in their lives. Like, you know, they might have, you know, like loads of children that need caring for, they might have um, disabilities, they might be anxious about their housing situation, they might have all sorts of, they might be, you know, caring for elderly relatives. Like, and this, like, the fact that you have to kind of recite what is plainly a lie that, you know, I'm the only person who can stop, who can hold myself back is kind of like horrendous really that the state would force people to, to sort of kind of state untruths in that way. Um, and I think what was even more concerning about about some of that, and this has really got some some of the psychotherapy profession very very worried in Britain and quite angry actually, was that um, in certain cases they would actually be required to um, engage with cognitive behavioural therapy as as a condition of receiving their their benefits. So that effectively they're saying, look, you're depressed because you're, you're unemployed, and we're going to you are going to have to go through eight weeks of cognitive behavioural therapy uh, in order to carry on with this program. So effectively you've got a kind of state enforced cognitive behavioral therapy program. I mean, a lot of therapists were saying, you know, the, the precedents for states using psychotherapeutic techniques in this way are horrific. I mean, we're looking at sort of, you know, this is sort of thing that would go on in the Soviet Union or something in, in, in some of the worst instances of, of sort of, you know, re-education or something. So so that is a, this, there's, something, there's something quite politically frightening about, about this sort of turn towards individual attitude and behavior. On the other hand, a version of happiness science that was attentive to um, inequality, to institutions, to um, the things that you know schools can do. Schools can have a huge impact on their on children's well-being in terms of you know the, the extent to which they allow them to just sort of play and and and, and sort of learn in a, in a in a in a relaxed environment and so on. And that has a huge effect on their happiness and their well-being and so on. Or you know there are aspects to do with public health and, and and social security in general. I mean, not just in sort of particular welfare areas, but clearly a lot of unhappiness could be alleviated with reduced economic and social insecurity. And a lot of anxiety stems from people's circumstances. So that you could imagine a sort of politically progressive version of all of this. I wanted to go back to, um, you were talking about how CBT and how these like positive thinking slogans are being forced on people. So typically when we think about forced treatment um, and so far what this podcast has covered, this podcast series is um, we think about uh, forced psychiatric treatment, forced drugging, maybe incarceration. Um, we don't think about positive thinking necessarily or CBT. So could you speak more directly to the coercive aspects of the happiness industry and how it can be seen as a form of forced treatment? Well, I mean, I think workplaces are one area where um, this 
I mean, you know, I think if, if people are, are required to engage in kind of positive thinking programs and workplaces, then that, that has a has a potentially a, a coercive aspect to it. I mean, I mentioned, you know, CBT being integrated into the into the welfare state in, in Britain, which I mean it's it's I mean it's it's pretty marginal to be honest that is it is um but I think um uh I mean I don't I don't know of I mean do you know of cases of, of CBT being forced upon people? Um I mean definitely in psychiatric hospitals where people are required to undergo CBT. And I've I've also I've heard about that the welfare program. Yeah. But I also think maybe that the principles of CBT have kind of permeated into everyday life. I don't know if you've seen that at all. Yeah. I mean, CBT obviously, um, and and again, I mean, we have to, we have to acknowledge that these things often have good intentions and they can, they can achieve positive outcomes. So they're not, they're not wholly, um, you know, that, that, that I, I think it's always worth recognizing that just, you know, for any listeners who've had good experiences, I'm not trying to say that they're fake or something like that. Um, but I mean, um, I mean, in Britain, um, a lot of this was developed by, uh, economist who was close to the, to the, um, Blair government called Richard Layard. And he's a very esteemed professor of economics, uh, at the London school of economics. And he, um, developed a sort of economic business case, really, for 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 well, literally, it was called a business case for for CBT, where he sort of did the did put together the economic analysis, showing that you know people if people could get uh, eight weeks of CBT, this would actually be a net positive to the economy because of the cost that depression and absence from work and um, the cost to the welfare state of, of people suffering from uh, mental health. Um, uh, disorders of various kinds, and this was this was pretty groundbreaking in the early 2000s, and this developed into um, a program in our national health service called IAPT, which stands for Increasing Access to Psychological Therapies, and um, this meant that effectively, because long-term psychotherapy is not really compatible with an economic mentality because you don't know how long it's going to go on for. You don't know what the results are going to be. I mean, there are, you know, there is an effort in certain corners of psychodynamic psychotherapy to, to start building a business, to start building an evidence base for its effects. And I think some people are showing that you can construct actually quite a convincing evidence base because the relapse rates are, are far lower than under CBT um, of, of long-term uh, psychodynamic psychotherapy or psychoanalysis. Um, but I think part of Layard's achievement um, in Britain, anyway, was to was to get doctors to to start prescribing CBT much more widely and to get the NHS to 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 offer it. But it also means that CBT has now become a sort of um, I mean a bit like I think you know Prozac ended up being used for all sorts of different problems. It became a sort of you know a, a, something which was a sort of uh, seen as being something you could sort of throw Prozac at things and, and see how it turned out. Uh, CBT has become a bit like that as well. So that, you know, if you, you're, sort of, I don't know, nervous of public speaking or something or nervous about flying or something like that, um, you can turn that into a diagnosis and then prescribe CBT for it. And this becomes, yes, I think as you say, it becomes a sort of a way of thinking about problems um, that by thinking about them simultaneously, cognitively and behaviorally, that you can kind of learn to manage them in, in, in different ways. And it's not, I mean, I've never had CBT myself, but as I understand it, I mean, it's not, it's not a million miles away from other forms of, it might be more scientifically grounded in some ways, but I mean, there are other forms of positive thinking and which 
might be more kind of guru led um, and some which are plainly sort of based in kind of <laughs> sort of a fair, fair amount of kind of fantasies and so on. And But there's a kind of a spectrum, I think, of, of scientific credibility. And, um, you know, there are other 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 positive thinking kind of mantras and, and, and belief systems and so on that, that CBT is not a million miles away from. Right. So it's sort of, I suppose it's problematic in a way when it, you know, um, when it becomes seen as being a sort of something that, that has some sort of, um, you know, that it can sort of deliver outcomes or solve problems when human beings aren't really like that a lot of the time. And going back to some of the wealth programs that you mentioned in the workplace, um, could you tell us a little bit more about um, the coercive aspects of those and how those are mandated? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, I mean, you know, this, this, in some ways this goes together with the, with the increase of, of surveillance in workplaces, which a lot of people are quite anxious about at the moment. I mean, the, the capacity to for surveillance of employee um, wellness and behaviour is 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 just shooting up massively at the moment, and I mean this is partly. I mean you hear of what's sometimes called Taylorism 2.0 because um, uh, Frederick Taylor, who's someone I talk a bit about in the book, but was a was was often called the world's first management consultant, um, operating in um, uh, Philadelphia in the kind of 1890s, and would basically just sort of measure people's movement uh, and then look at all of the data and in, in, in workplaces and factories, look at all the data and then say, well, if we did it like this, then you'd save this much time and therefore you'd save this much money, basically. Um, and nowadays, of course, Amazon can apply a very similar mentality to the way in which their, their warehouses are run, but they don't have to kind of have a management consultant standing there with a clipboard, they just attach kind of devices to everybody's bodies. So as to see kind of, you know, are people moving efficiently and how long is their uh, bathroom break? And, you know, are they, are they kind of moving around the shelf stacks in the, in, in the most efficient way? And that's a, a very frightening kind of vision. It doesn't necessarily in, in, in engage with their wellness, but, but there are all these kind of uh, suites of technologies, uh, which can also potentially include you know, looking at you can run sentiment analysis programs on people's emails to see if they are expressing kind of um, any any form of unhappiness in by their work email. You know, you might have a workplace counselling service or a workplace nutritional service so as to try and help people live happier, more healthy lives, and so on. And obviously, there's a balance between. You know, if, if if someone is if someone is told you have to wear this wearable or you're going to get fired, that is clearly a kind of coercive. Um, uh, situation, whereas you might have a much more sort of, you know, like the kind of Google campus model where you've got kind of, you know, really quite privileged employees, but ultimately kind of their workplace is, is, is trying to cater to all of their, their needs, so almost so they never need to leave, really. Um, and, um, you know, that you might get, uh, you might have workplace meditation sessions and mindfulness. And I mean, I haven't even mentioned mindfulness, but of course, that's a key part of the way in which sort of um, happiness is being brought into workplaces, schools. Um, uh, it's particularly popular in, in Silicon Valley. Um, and, you know, a sort of an idea that, that and it goes, I think, heavily along with a, with a kind of neuroscientific idea of, of what happiness is, because in a way, I think a lot of, and uh, the other thing I haven't mentioned yet, is the you know the, the, dis the discovery of sleep as a as a as this sort of thing that can be optimized and um, Ariana Huffington's kind of latest venture I understand is is based around trying to promote um, more optimal sleep in various ways um, and so you know the, 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 this this idea that that a human being is a kind of an asset that 
can be optimized in, in mind and body um, and can equally break down in mind and body um, has a sort of maybe not. I mean, I, I wouldn't myself choose to call it coercive because that suggests that you kind of don't have any choice. But it has certainly has a sort of a, a rather kind of uh, a, 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 I mean, it has a surveillance aspect and it has a kind of, you know, a sort of all in, all encompassing uh, rather totalizing aspect, you know, that it's a sort of doesn't really offer much of an outside or the capacity to to sort of ever 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 evade the gaze of the of the of the of the mood monitor or the behavioral monitor and that sort of thing. So it sort of operates less coercively in the sense of kind of forcing people to do things and more. Um, and this is where I suppose my work is influenced by the the French um, philosopher and historian Michel Foucault, who, who who believed that actually, you know, often power doesn't act to repress us, but it kind of acts almost sort of through our own um, through our own volition in some ways. That it's you know rather than sort of the the vision of a sort of um, the sort of George Orwell's vision of, of power as kind of snooping on us and, and and frightening us. Actually, in some ways, it's you know the ways in which we are sort of encouraged to try and be more sort of free or happy or be more ourselves is itself a sort of rather imprisoning one in its own right. Yes, absolutely. I, I think coercion is a spectrum too. I think yeah, there's definitely um, more like enforce there's force drugging and there's involuntary commitment um but yeah but i i completely agree with you and foucault who have said that um force is is also or power is also um carried out through more subtle mechanisms mm -hmm. um so yeah i was wondering if you can speak to the role that both the happiness industry um and that kind of surveillance play in neoliberalism and capitalism well i mean a lot of what i've been talking about already is i suppose implicitly in the context of of, of neoliberal capitalism right. um i mean i think neoliberalism is a system and, I, and in my first book was called the limits of neoliberalism and it was about I suppose the ideology of, of neoliberalism, and, and I I placed particular emphasis on in, in in my understanding of neoliberalism in that book. I argue that neoliberalism is a is a is an ideology that tries to organise all domains of social life, not just markets, but around uh, the logic of competition and competitiveness. So that it's not just enough to say you have to be you know in a market competition, for instance, in a labour market. You know, we we reorganise universities around rankings and constantly sort of trying to rise up rankings or we um, organize, um, uh, you know, uh, if you want to modernize your health system, you have to kind of make it more competitive. Um, if you know that you have examples of um, people who have been kind of big sports coaches going and becoming management gurus or, um, or vice versa. So you kind of you've got this sort of mentality that everything has to be reorganized so that people are in a condition of rivalry against each other. And that's the sort of way to, to, to improve performance is to constantly try and reorganize things in, in that way. That's my sort of understanding of, of neoliberalism. Right. I think in terms of where happiness comes into that is, is in a couple of ways, really. One is that um, we all, the question of motivation becomes very, very um, uh, crucial in, in, in that kind of culture and that kind of political society, because in a sense, the, 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 the neoliberal injunction, and I think in some ways you could say this is in some ways a, a, a core pathology of, of American society. So, it, so maybe it goes back much, much, much longer in American culture. Um, 
but I suppose someone like Milton Friedman, who was one of the great neoliberal ideologues, would, would was 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 sort of in some ways trying to sort of resuscitate the American ideal. But but the, the, this you have to constantly believe that you can make it in this in this neoliberal system. You can't sort of say, well, I you know I just, I want to be mediocre. You have to because if you're going to be mediocre, someone's going to come along and 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 beat you, and they might take what you have. You know that you're in a you're in a race the entire time. So the question of how do you keep on believing and aspiring and and, and desiring is a constant sort of kind of challenge to the neoliberal ego, uh, to the neoliberal self, is that you have to kind of find within yourself the resources to believe that you can be the best and that you can be the that you can be better than others. And that's where I think the kind of culture of self-help, positive thinking plays such an important role um, economically, because the mentality of, of neoliberalism is is to say you know, like if you're poor, that's sort of your fault in some way. And it's because you have sort of you, you, you have you've not shown yourself to be to be kind of competitive enough to be worthy enough. Um, the neoliberal critique of of the welfare state is that it just inculcates laziness uh, and it needs to be cut back because then people will find the resources to sort of throw themselves forward into some kind of, sort of enterprising entrepreneurial activity. But this places this huge strain on on, on, on the self and particularly on the you know like it's it's fine when you've been born into money or something i think a lot of neoliberalism kind of breaks down eventually over things like inherited wealth because ultimately you know if you, it's it's easy to 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 take risks when you've got something to fall back on it's very hard to take risks and be that kind of enterprising self when you've got nothing to fall back on and if, if failing means that you're going to be kind of living in the street then kind of believing in, in that sort of ideal of, of constant competition and competitiveness is very, very hard. And so that, I think, so it, in a sense, it instrumentalizes positive thinking. I think what the other thing it does is that it, um, you know, in a sense, and one of the best books I've ever read on depression is a book called The Weariness of the Self by Alan Ehrenberg. And Ehrenberg kind of sees contemporary depression as a distinctively neoliberal uh, condition, really, um, of that the, the depressed self. I mean, uh, until the 1960s or 70s, depression was conceived of as some sort of form of guilt or shame. Uh, and this is how Freud understood it, or he called it melancholia, which was that the self sort of had a desire that was being repressed. So it might be that you wanted to be one thing, but society was telling you to be another. So you, you might be homosexual, but you didn't feel able to to express that desire because of social norms or something. So there was a kind of a, a conflict and a feeling of guilt and, and, and shame and neurosis. But what Ehrenberg shows is that from the sort of 60s onwards, and then neoliberalism sort of, I suppose, kind of channels this into the economy, um, the injunction is to just be more and more and more and do achieve more and more and more and desire more and more and demand more and more and achieve more and compete more. And that depression is a sort of becomes a disorder of just sort of collapse, really, that I just can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I haven't got anything more in the tank, you know. Uh, and so I think that that, that I think that, you know, the way in which these these sort of um, the, these these mental um, sort of um, uh, you know, the, these syndromes and, and diagnoses change. And I think that the neoliberal um, capitalism is a, is a is a crucial context to all of this. I mean, in terms of capitalism more generally, I mean, there was, you know, a, a sort of rapid deindustrialization across the Western economies that, um, well, it was underway from the 50s, but it accelerated rapidly in the 70s and 80s, uh, such that economies became more organized around the production of intangible 
um, uh, uh, services, um, customer ser- customer service, uh, creativity. You know um, that what that what that what a worker was was increasingly a sort of you know you had to channel the emotional and psychological aspects of your workforce. And this is why Hochschild's study in the managed heart. Um, from uh, around about, as I say, around about 1980, was 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 at such a kind of interesting and important time to do that. Was that this was the development of what some sociologists would call post-Fordism, where you've moved out of a, a Fordist uh, economy, producing kind of cars in a production line, and no one really cares how you're feeling as you do it, to this post-Fordist economy where you might be making coffee or uh, developing, um, you know, I don't know, animations in a studio or uh, a graphic designer or on a call center or something, where the spirit with which you do it and the look on your face as you do it and your feelings of enthusiasm about it matter deeply to your employer. So there's a kind of like a, a sort of mobilization of the psyche and of affect from, from the 1970s onwards. Mm-hmm. I did want to ask also about um, the U.S. recovery movement, and I, I think it's also in the U.K. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Um, I'm not, actually. Okay, sort of the consumer survivor ex-patient, um, kind of people with lived experience of mental health challenges or trauma, um, distress, people basically advocating recovery through alternative means to the psychiatric system. Um, mm-hmm. So sometimes that's psychotherapy, but other times that is more positive thinking. Um, and then there's also obviously the addiction field version of recovery and that's more 12 step programs and things like mm-hmm. that have you have you has your work touched on that at all either not really actually i mean it sounds very interesting i mean i know that you know there are various efforts to try and come up with alternative ways of relieving distress in, in these various ways and i know there's been sort of over time there's been sort of community mental health programs and and you know there's i mean i've heard of this sort of thing i mean there's a there's an interesting um example in the uk which has been studied a bit as a kind of alternative sort of non-medicinal approach to mental health. And there's one, one example called the Talk, Hearing Voices Network, yeah. which includes people who hear voices um, so they could be diagnosed as schizophrenic. But at the same time, their diagnosis doesn't really help them very much and the treatments don't kind of make these voices go away. Uh, and so instead they have turned it into a kind of form of identity and that they share their experiences and, you know, and they have very positive experiences as well. Lots of them quite like their voices or they have different names for them and they, they, they've integrated them into their lives in various ways. So I think that, yeah, a sort of demedicalization of mental experiences and of, and of distress, I think obviously has quite a lot of uh, political potential. Yeah, I think so. I also do worry, though, at times I see it going in the direction of more positive thinking. Um, And yeah, I'm not sure if you've seen anything like that. There is a group specifically in the UK that's kind of critiquing that called Recovery in the Bin. um, That's looking at how recovery is used to kind of enforce these neoliberal policies. Yeah, so I think that's all the questions I have. Is there anything else you'd want to share? So my next book is called Nervous States, uh, Democracy and the Decline of Reason. And it's, um, I suppose it's about nervous states in, in, in multiple senses. I mean, one is that I think there's a kind of pun that, I mean, we, we live in a, in, a, in a politically nervous situation where we don't really, we, we, we feel that we're on the cusp of some fairly major developments at the moment. And people read the news kind of not expect, not knowing what to expect from one day to the next. Um, but I think it's also, I suppose, nervous in in a sort of almost in a kind of cybernetic sense that we live increasingly in a state of 
reactivity and living in a kind of flow of real-time data, uh, which is making us increasingly jumpy the entire time where we are. Uh, and it's, I think it's also damaging our democracy and it's damaging our capacity to have um, uh, more careful, slower types of uh, dialogue at a public level because we're constantly living in this in this in this world at the moment where we've got a you know we have a, a, a tweeting president of the united states who was able to kind of completely change the mood or the discussion that people are having from one moment to the next simply by using his twitter feed um and so the book is really about sort of some of the kind of challenges that this um type of real-time reactivity that uh, some of how it affects us both personally but also politically uh, and I think that I suppose there's been a lot of discussion of this idea of post-truth with the rise of with Trump and populism in, in Europe and so on um, and although I don't really use that term the book is partly trying to understand what is going on with the status of, of expertise and facts in society but by trying to say well it's partly about the an over acceleration of public discourse that is being affected partly by the rise of digital technologies, but also by the rise of a kind of a, a neoliberal business culture, where um, which privileges, I suppose, speed of of of, of knowing about things over um, the generation of more um, uh, generation of kind of knowledge that could be the basis of of, of public agreement, public understanding of of, of each other. Um, because I mean, just use an example of that, you know hedge funds and, and, and high frequency traders. I mean, a lot of these, these types of businesses that make such extraordinary profits are doing so by trying to react to price movements just a fraction of a second before their rival. So we, you know, this is the sort of um, political economy that we're living in, where um, combined with the, the rise of, of, of smartphones and social media apps and this sort of thing, where in a sense, there's a, there's a kind of subjectivity that has been developed and a politics that has been developed where um, being constantly braced to know things before others and to react to things before others has become the sort of um, has become valorized over other ways of encountering the world and, and, and knowing things. Awesome. That sounds really interesting. Great. Well, it's been really good to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us and for, yeah, for all of your amazing work on the happiness well, industry. Great. Thanks. It's really good to talk to you. So I want to thank Dr. Davies and Emily for that interview. And if you'd like to know more about Dr. Davies' work, you can find links in the post that accompanies this interview on maddenamerica.com. So thanks for listening. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.